So good morning, everyone. This morning, I'd like to uh, continue with a theme which I began in May and gave uh, two talks, two explorations. And this was on the theme of othering and belonging. And I want, I think, to complete the series today. So I'll give a review for those who weren't here at those uh, first two talks. And by this concept of othering, I'm referring to how we create others of other people and often of ourselves as well. The way in which we see ourselves as not quite okay, normal, belonging, the way we see others as not quite okay, normal, or belonging. And I'm going to be primarily focusing on practical ways of working with this and give a little more emphasis on the theme of belonging, which I haven't done so much in the first two talks. And that will be particularly focusing on the theme of community and of what uh, Dr. Martin Luther King called the beloved community. How do we create a community, a world, whether it's more local, a spiritual community, or where we live, how do we create a place where there's that sense of more universal belonging? This, this is an aspiration which I think touches our hearts uh, very deeply. And yet it's uh, often hard to manifest. And of course, we come up against the cruelty and the craziness of the world at times when we try to move in that direction. And I think of this area as being more in terms of our core practice, more in what we could call the range of intermediate or advanced practice. You know, the initial practice that we do is often to learn to first approach our minds, our bodies, our hearts, to, uh, in the context of meditation practice, to learn how to settle our minds some, to have some peace, to begin to see, oh, these are the habits of my mind and body and heart. This says, oh, look at that. You know, and so I've sometimes mentioned how when I, when I was first studying meditation, uh, I found out how much I was a planner. And I'd sit and the instructions were just to be with the breath and I would you know, in, out, and I was a student at the time and should I, okay, plan this report. Okay, here's what I'm, here's what I'm gonna do. It wasn't quite so linear, it was just, you know, but, uh, uh, and it was, it was a major insight to really see, oh, this is how my mind works. I'm actually planning a lot of the time. Uh, and. I, you know, if I, in a half hour period, I might plan the report that I was going to do the next day 30 times, <laughs> whereas 15 would be quite adequate. <laughs> so these are what we sometimes call aha experiences. And this is part of what we explore initially. And it's actually to come to see our own minds, our own experience as workable to come to see times of distress or difficulty as being workable. We have tools. We can work with our own minds, with our own emotions. As we mature, we can also become more skillful in our speech, our communication, our relationships. And this initial practice is partly the settling of attention, developing some degree of stability, settledness of mind, and then beginning to see more clearly what's going on in our experience. And, and we might especially start to be interested in the times where there's some contraction, uh, distress, difficulty. We learn how to be present with uh, difficult emotions or difficult mind states or difficult storylines that we tell ourselves. We start to see those we become more skillful. Um, very, very crucial, a tremendous uh, set of capacities, really, that um, 
all of you have mastered, and we, now we move on to the intermediate or advanced <laughs> practice. Of course, we keep on cultivating those qualities on an ongoing basis, and it's more like we uh, have continual reminders that there's still work to be done on what I was calling the more beginning level. So, um, But at a certain point, we have some capacities there, and we can move to different parts of our lives. We, we, maybe we have a sense, at least of the workability, maybe not all the time, but some of the time, the workability of the mind and heart and body. And then we can start to open up to other areas. Maybe we start to uh, ask the question of how do I bring these qualities of mindfulness and an increased kindness into the flow of my daily life? How do I bring it into work? How do I bring it into these challenging relationships? How do I bring it into this challenging part of my life? How do, I, uh, uh, how do I live with more wisdom? Maybe we start to study more. And we may see that the aim of the practice is to bring these uh, qualities and the cultivation of the qualities of mindfulness, awareness, kindness, warm heart, compassion, wisdom, equanimity, courage into all the parts of our lives. We sometimes say, uh, no part left out, which is big challenge, right? And that also means bringing it into the uh, more subtle aspects of our experience. Initially, when we practice, we may really notice, oh, here's where I'm reactive. Here's where there's distress. And that those present themselves immediately to our experience. And when we're cultivating mindfulness, those are hard to, hard to uh, escape, hard not to notice. But we also, as we listen more, some of the more subtle and hidden aspects of our experience start to come to the surface. Maybe it might be places where we judge ourselves or judge others and we start to see, oh, I have had this narrative going for a long time about being inadequate in this way, for example. Or um, not wanting to go to this part of my life. And as we practice more, we, we... quite naturally bring attention to some of these more hidden, call them unconscious, uh, more subtle dimensions of experience. And the practice, we could say, goes from the gross to the subtle, with many returns to the gross. (laughs) So to speak. And ultimately we also see the interpenetration of gross and subtle. So... um, But it's in that context that I wanted to speak about this theme of othering and belonging, because in some ways it goes into more subtle areas. I talked about this concept of creating an other, and we do that in a number of different ways. You know, we can see how we create an other simply when we have interpersonal difficulty, and the other person becomes categorized as a difficult person, or someone I don't want to deal with, or goes into this category. Our mind, you know, we we're told by the students of the brain that our mind loves to categorize because it simplifies experience. If I don't have to approach experience freshly each moment and figure out whether this person is going to be helpful or harmful, and have, if I have to figure out each moment, that makes experience much more complex. It's much easier to say, this person is an enemy. Done. I've organized experience successfully. We know that there are strong tendencies in our minds to categorize, to put people in categories, including ourselves, to organize experience for the sake of simplicity. And of course, that's a normal way that the mind works. And in itself, it's not a problem. The problem is, is that that capacity of the mind gets organized by places where we're ignorant. 
where we're caught in habitual patterns, where we're scared. And it organizes, therefore, uh, people with whom we have difficult interactions often into the permanently, uh, into permanent enemies. You know, even if just in our neighborhood, even if they're not, I'm using enemy in an exaggerated way, just to mean someone we have a, a difficulty with. Um, uh, we sometimes call that the difficult person. You know, and so I sometimes tell the story of, uh, I'm a regular swimmer at the uh, King Pool in Berkeley, which is strongly recommended. It's worth a trip to Berkeley, even from Australia, <laughs> to, to, to go to the King Pool. There are many wonderful people. Some of the lifeguards are themselves spiritual teachers, both literally and metaphorically. And um, so I, I sometimes tell the story where about nine years ago, a woman pulled my leg when I was swimming. And I didn't see her again for five years. But when I saw her, she was in that category. <laughs> and so we, uh, we create others in that way. You know, we, we create others interpersonally. You probably have others at work who are the difficult people or the people I don't talk to or whatever. And again, there can be a certain degree of validity in the, the designation of them to be in this category, but there's also uh, something that gets fixed and uh, something worth looking into. Another place where there's this creation of an other is probably better known to us. This is where we create others through uh, different kinds of social categories, where we have ways that our minds work on the basis, typically, of hundreds if not, not thousands of years of conditioning around race, around gender, around age, around, might be um, disability, could be class, educational level, religion, and so forth. And we know that this creating of others occurs as far as I know, in every culture. Mm, different cultures do it in different ways. And a lot of the news in the world is of conflicts between groups of people who may have mutually othered each other. You know, and so it's, it, it gets at the heart of uh, conflict and suffering to look at this. And we know that the, those uh, social categories have a lot of history a lot of weight, even if we are of the mind not to do it, our minds are still conditioned deeply, you know, around, you know, we can look at that in terms of race, we can look at it in terms of gender, and again, all the other ones I mentioned. And it can be uh, very humbling to see the way that one's mind works to be um, creating others on the basis of race or disability or age or gender, whatever. It um, can be disconcerting to our image of ourselves as um, having also this aspiration to universal belonging, which I was mentioning earlier. And so, and then there's also the way in which we create another of ourselves where we, I was mentioning before, and it can be very much connected with the social categories. If I've internalized the social categories, I'm, and I fit in the category, I may other myself. I may, I may buy into the conditioning around race, or gender, or age, or disability, or some other message I've received from society and it may hook into my own self-judgment. We know that. How many can relate to that? Yeah, yeah it's, um, it's, it's powerful. Or we may create an other of a part of ourselves. We may not be comfortable with some part of ourselves, our vulnerability or desire or sexuality or um, spirituality even. Right? There may be discomfort and I might partly because of family pressure or social pressure, might 
uh, you know, put this part of my life into a category. You know? And so the connection uh, with Buddhist practice, I think, is important because I, I'm particularly interested in how with the process of creating an other, we also have a process of creating a self. And I might be either creating a self when I work with the sense of other that is uh, demeaned or seen negatively, as in some of the examples I just give, gave. And also, if we, if we are creating an other where the other is more demeaned or marginalized, there's implicitly going to be some way in which I create a self that is more privileged or more quote-unquote normal. And that's quite subtle. That's quite, quite subtle, hard to look at, hard to see. But, and so that's why I was saying this is more intermediate or advanced practice, where this is a way of looking into some of those more subtle dimensions of the self, which clearly, by the examples I've given, is connected with a quite a, bit of, a lot of suffering you know, for thousands of years. And yet it's more subtle to get at, not so easy. Some, some, some of the aspects are easier than others, but a lot of it's more subtle. You know, I know this, for example, I've been, I think I've mentioned this, I'm, I'm part of two groups at the present moment of people who uh, are categorized as white who are looking into whiteness and the conditioning around whiteness. And it's quite powerful often to look at that. A lot of it's very, very subtle. You know, it's not so clear. And there, there's also a tremendous amount, at times, of shame and guilt and confusion around these, around these issues. And, you know, one of the discoveries I've had is actually, there's actually um, more pain and suffering than I would have thought among groups who are privileged. It's interesting. Right? It's an interesting, but it, it's beneath the surface. It expresses itself as confusion. One example is in one of the groups some of the groups, people uh, actually didn't have a sense of actually who they were, their identity. They didn't connect, they described themselves as mutts, have, coming from, some of them from like eight European countries, right? And, and, and there was no sense of, I, didn't, I don't come from anywhere. I don't have any identity. I don't have any way of connecting. It's a, really an aspect, I don't have a way of belonging. You know, how do I belong if I can't trace my background, which has been what humans have done for thousands, you know, if not more years. That's an example. So I want to point to three ways of practicing in this area, some of which we've mentioned. One of them is studying the ways that othering occurs. A second is trying to counter those forms of othering in different ways. And a third is creating more of a sense of belonging through developing uh, community. And I'm going to have as a um, significant reference point Dr. Martin Luther King's concept of the beloved community, which is a beautiful way of talking. And it's quite explicitly a sense of uh, an intention to move towards a universal inclusive community. And many people think this is one of the core aspirations of our time. You know, so some of the challenges now are like, could be interpreted as the growing pains of something that's actually very beautiful that's slowly coming into being and that we may be very much part of. So three ways of practicing. Studying othering, looking at it closely. Secondly, countering processes of creating an other in any of those three ways I mentioned, and then thirdly, creating a sense of belonging. So again, intermediate or advanced practice. Make sure we do our beginning practice, so it helps. Um, okay, so it can be helpful just initially just to uh, ask ourselves, I think it, it's helpful to ask ourselves, how do I sometimes feel like an other? How do I not belong? What have I seen in my history? You know, and to look at that, because I think, and maybe I'll even ask you just to reflect 
individually right now for a minute or two. Where have I felt like another in some part of my life? Could be around age, ethnicity, any of those categories I mentioned, or in relationships with someone. Thank you. So I think that that inner reflection is very important because what we, what we, what is helpful, what I've seen as helpful in these kind of inquiries is more or less seeing that we're in the same boat together and that in a way all of us have had some ways in which we've been others, othered, or will have that. You know, to the extent that those who are older are created as others. You know, but we can, you know, for some of us it might be especially through gender, some of it through ethnicity, some of it through maybe could be political views in some, some parts of the country. It could be even, for some, even level of sensitivity, right? You know, it might be, I, I can relate to myself that there was some way I, I felt very confused when I was growing up at just witnessing the level of cruelty among kids, right? And, and uh, you know, I remember going to uh, my first day of school in, at, in kindergarten. Maybe this happened to you too, but the first graders taunted the kindergartner students. I think in, in my school it was kindergarten, kindergarten babies soaked in the gravy. <laughs> that was my welcoming. <laughs> and how many of you had similar experiences? Yeah, some, anyway, that was, and so it was like, you know, instantly othered, right? In a way. And it, did, and it you know, for me it was, there were questions of like, my gosh, the level of cruelty, do, you know, do I belong to this? community, you know, even do I belong to this earth, right, can, can come up, you know. And uh, I imagine some of you resonate with that, you know, that, that, uh, so, so uh, I think having, seeing where oneself felt like another, I think is quite important because it takes one to one's own um, suffering and it can open up the heart. And it can, because we have to hold all this with a lot of metta and compassion. There's no other way, you know, there's no other way to work with it. And so anyone looking into this area, I think, needs to come from uh, the cultivation of compassion and to have that there. And, and I think it's also important because the, the understanding that we all in some ways have been othered helps take the factor of blame and guilt and shame tends to take that out of the picture more. Because it's very, very, um, as I was mentioning in the context of people looking at whiteness, it's very, very uh, easy to go there. And it shuts one down. There's not really much possibility of inquiry when those feelings are strong. And so uh, coming from compassion and also seeing that in some way um, everyone is othered. This isn't at all to say that it's equal for people. I'm not saying that at all. Some people um, are in groups where, where the othering is stronger and has more consequences. Obviously, we know that in terms of something like uh, race, and particularly among African Americans. We know, we know that. Um, but still, the fact that everyone is othered is very important because I think the 
it's necessary to explore this territory and watch out for blame and shame and guilt and so forth, and to, to look there. So we want to see where there is that sense, where do I create another? And some of us have been looking into this for, for some time. How do, I, how do I see that in my own experience? How can I study when I do that myself? How can I study my mind? What does it feel like? What does it feel like when I do that to myself? Can I, can I study that, uh, that sense of uh, creating another or doing that to myself? And really being on a lookout for that. Not easy. You have to have the intention, right? Sometimes it helps a lot to actually study some of the uh, territory. You know, to study, sometimes to study the history, I find very helpful. You know, so some of this to really look more carefully at how we create others. I, find, I found it helpful, for example, to look at the history of race, to study that, to look at, to look at the constructions of that, to look at gender. Sometimes that can come up in the context of close relationships, to look at how we, we look at age and so forth. So this is a lot, right? This is a lot to look at. How do we how do we inquire into that? How do we see that? Maybe it can be useful just to take one at a time, not to try to look at everything. How do I create an other here and to, and to uh, study that? And to study, you know, to study that deeply. It involves sometimes going into territory that's painful. You know? I know for myself, one of the very interesting experiences was to... Um, in the early 1990s, I made several trips to the former Soviet Union and to Eastern Europe. And I went into the, I spent a lot of time going to places connected with the Holocaust. And going in, you know, going into that history, it, it led to reading. And uh, a lot of reading and study and so forth. And I, I did a pilgrimage to Auschwitz and uh, went to other places, some of where uh, some of my own, where my grandparents came from. And um, I had dreams of the Nazis for the next three years. <laughs> and, but interestingly, part of the upshot of that was that uh, um, some of the upshot of the dreams were, was that I interpreted them as that I was seeing how I've internalized myself as a Nazi in certain ways. It wasn't manifesting in overt cruelty, but it might manifest in control or regimentation, you know, or even thoughts of that were, might be cruel. But something got evoked where I was able to see, how, you know, how am I like that myself? You know, because there's a way that we uh, internalize everything. There's a, there's a powerful passage from, let me see, this is from James Baldwin. People know who James Baldwin is, the uh, uh, African-American writer, a gay African-American writer who died about, I think, the late 80s. Was very, you can look at him on YouTube, amazing, amazingly articulate. He, he lived a lot of his life in Paris. He, and he wrote this, We are all androgynous, not only because we are all born of a woman impregnated by the seed of a man, but because each of us helplessly and forever contains the other. Male and female, female and male, white and black, and black and white. We are a part of each other. Many of my countrymen appear to find this fact exceedingly inconvenient and even unfair, and so very often do I, but none of us can do anything about it. In that sense, when we look deeply, we find that we've internalized everything, actually and we can work with it. So this inner inquiry is challenging, right? It's, but it's something we can do. Maybe we look in one area at a time, and we, we, we study, we study that. When we notice ourselves creating an other, what do we do? How do we do? How do we respond? Secondary, and I could probably take full sessions or three sessions on each of these three kinds of practice. The first kind of practice is just noticing. 
that third, we're creating another. The second <coughs> is responding in some ways. How do we respond? Uh, as I mentioned, I think having regular metta or compassion practice is very crucial for all this. Because what, one thing I didn't mention explicitly is that what creating an other does, whether we do it to another person, a group, or ourselves, is it takes us out of our heart. It takes us out of kindness, out of compassion, out of empathy. And so one of the first ways we can respond is to cultivate empathy. The regular cultivation of empathy is a very powerful practice in general, but especially in this area. And empathy simply means to be able to tune in in ways that are very natural to us, that the, again, the scientists, the students of the brain tell us is a natural capacity, the way the limbic system works normally, is that we actually tune in the way that I can actually be very aware when I'm in a room and someone comes in and, and that person is in distress, 30 feet away, I know that, right? That's the limbic system. It's actually an aspect of not-self. It's an aspect, deep aspect of interconnection, right? That gets shut down when we create another. You know, whether it's interpersonal or in relation to a part of ourselves or in relation to a group, in significant part, because the process of othering is fueled by anxiety and fear, often by uncertainty. And so having these heart practices, remember that metta practice is an antidote to fear. So keeping on with the, the metta practice, and remember the aspiration of metta practice, of loving-kindness practice, is to start where we can develop that kindness and warmth uh, more easily, but then move it out to where it's more difficult. A perfect practice for this. Right? Perfect practice for this. So to have a regular metta practice, have an empathy practice. And I've sometimes given here the simple empathy practice that we can do um, in general. Uh, and it's better to practice with all of these capacities. It's better to practice where things aren't too hard. So we practice empathy with people we love, no problem. And we, the empathy is to tune, you know, simple empathy practice I've given sometimes is to tune in consciously to what the person is feeling, the emotions, and then the uh, sense of what matters for the person. Those two things. Practice that every day. Empathy gets developed. And then in certain moments, when, when the empathy practice has been developed, some, we can practice, you can practice that, I don't know, watching a, a, a comedy on television tune in empathically to the people in the television show. It can be a, a, um, another practice not taught by the Buddha for, <laughs> for bringing practice into daily life. So, um, so that's very simple empathy practice and then we can, uh, we can do that practice at times when we're creating another. There's a, there's a woman named uh, Jean Knudsen Hoffman who has a very powerful uh, essay. And the title of the essay is My Enemy is Someone Whose Story I Have Not Heard. Powerful, right? So a prime tool for peacemakers is hearing the stories of others. And it's really appealing to the, this capacity of the heart to respond when there's not too much fear or um, anxiety or a sense of being startled. It's a natural capacity to respond. And so we can respond with empathy in that way. We can cultivate empathy and again practice it where it's on a scale of ten more like the fives or the sixes. Someone difficult at work but not level ten level five, and say, this person who I have othered, what is this person feeling? What, is this, what matters for this person? And you might notice your mind saying, I'm not going there. <laughs> right? So then try it with level three. But, but we can do that practice. You can do, we can take that on 
when you, you know that you're, you're going to be with some people you find are difficult, that you typically find difficult, try empathy practice. Not easy, but this is going in that direction. And, and again, uh, when we, at the level of social groups, you know, this is where reading, hearing people's stories makes a huge difference, right? It's that quality of hearing the story and the empathy will tend to disintegrate the process of othering. Of course, going across boundaries, having friends in among the social categories that you don't usually connect with, right? That in itself can be a very powerful way to go against the process of othering. You know, one of, one of the, I think, most uh, hopeful facts that uh, I've heard in, in terms of the process of othering around uh, ethnicity is that at this time, 40% of families have um, family members, at least in the extended family, who are of a different ethnicity. And it's only going very quickly to a higher level, right? And that, that will lead to um, empathy. And that will lead people, th those 40% most likely, when they find themselves othering, they say, I don't want to do that because I have this family member. And it becomes very personal, right? And it's been, it's been amazing to be, to see, I, I was, uh, yeah, I was on Saturday at a, uh, at a memorial for a friend's mother. And uh, she had married a, uh, um, a man whose uh, father was, uh, was Chinese and mother was from Belgium. And in this, in this memorial gathering, there were just quite a multiplicity of ethnicities. And everyone um, was connecting. And I imagine that they would be very uh, observant about any tendencies to other, certainly around the ethnicities of their extended family, right? So it was very, it was quite moving in that way. So we can practice in this way, practice metta. Um, sometimes it means to disrupt narratives, like dominant narratives, which create others. That could take its whole, a whole topic. You hear someone saying something, maybe you question it. That, that would be part of this process. And then lastly, with limited time, I will talk about the beloved community. <laughs> you know, but it's also an aspect of our practice is trying to create more of that sense of belonging. More, more of that sense of uh, connection. And I, I was reflecting on some experiences which I've had which were very powerful. One of them was when I was uh, 15, I went to a camp uh, in New York City and it had about 100 20 people there, and I think about half were African-American. And some of them were freshly, they were people 15 to 18, freshly from the Civil Rights Movement. And there was a real sense of this is just a extended community. that We had Native Americans. It was on the East Coast. I, I was born on the East Coast, but it had, had Native Americans who I, whom I had never met, I think from Utah or Nevada, you know. You know. And um, that was a, there was some sense of uh, kind of that universal belonging. It touched something very deep. And I remember another time when I was in Thailand, I, I went a number of times to meetings of the uh, International Network of Engaged Buddhists. Engaged means socially engaged, not, you know, people about to be, <laughs> not about to be married. But anyway. Um, and... I remember one event, we were all, we, one place, we all stayed at a, a monastery and there were people from all over Asia and all over the whole world. We were all living, we all lived together for a week and it was such an ease of flow and we were of course connected by our interest in Buddhist practice and by our interest in uh, connecting that with social service and social action. It was quite a unity and it really led to this there's a beautiful feeling of just connecting and easy flow and hearing stories. I remember I particularly connected 
with a group of uh, people from uh, Bangladesh. And then India, who are part of the Buddhist community in India, who are sometimes feeling persecution. And I heard their stories for a week. Right? And we were, there was an intermingling, something quite beautiful. It really, at that time, it was very inspiring. It was something like that beloved community. And I'm sure you've had experiences like that. Maybe it's not a larger group, maybe it's a smaller group. There's something that I think inspires us about this sense of creating a community of universal belonging. You know, I also experienced that at times teaching at the East Bay Meditation Center in Oakland, which is, some have said is the most diverse sangha in the whole country. Right? And you might go there. I'm teaching on Friday. <laughs> okay, I will. Anyway, but, there, but often that sense, you know, that sense of, uh, of uh, belonging. And it's, it's useful to remember also that the original community founded by the Buddha 2,500 years ago, I think very explicitly, was something founded to go against the process of creating others in his society. In his society, it was the caste system, right? And when you entered the community, think of this, 2,500 years ago. I feel, I feel myself move some just thinking about 2,500 years ago, there was a movement in which you entered the community and you were no longer a Brahmin or an untouchable. Um, everyone was welcome. And they could, um, they could join and um, feel connected for their own deeper values, by their deeper values. And so that's something which we, we have that heritage here. We're really, you know, in a way, uh, wanting in our own time to express that. Right? It's in the tradition, that lineage. And you also know that uh, the Buddha originally um, was resistant at first to go against the othering of women. But his attendant, Ananda, requested of him three times that women be able to join the Sangha, be nuns, etc. And there's a tradition in India where if you're asked something three times, you have to agree to it. <laughs> Ananda must have known that was a little bit um, clever. And so at that time, again, I think this went totally against the grain, against the process that, using our language, we would say the othering of women. And women were brought into the Sangha. Yeah. And, and so there's that lineage, there's that history. There's something that we can really um, build on and, and be inspired by and ask, in my community, how can I have this be a, an expression of that invitation to a universal belonging, you know, going against all the forms of othering that are major in our society, and then how can this be a community that becomes you know, a model for the rest of the world? in that sense, I think, which, which uh, the original Sangha was really that. And there's this um, way, I'll just be brief on this, but part, you know, one of the major inspirations in our time is that of uh, Dr. King's uh, understanding of what he called the beloved community, which was a concept that came from a, a philosopher named uh, Josiah Royce, who was an American philosopher at the, around, around 1900 who I believe taught at Harvard, if I remember right. And um, this is what King said, you know, and he was, he, you know, because we can find that sense of belonging in smaller groups. We can find that in a family. We can find that in a local community. And, and that local community and that sense of belonging can, can go hand in hand with othering others, right? We can have local belonging and on a larger scale there can be a creation of others. That's, uh, we, we see that. You know, I've sometimes told stories of seeing home movies of the Nazi commandants at the concentration camps. They were very friendly with their children. A very nice sense of belonging, it seemed. It was limited. Right? And so King very explicitly says a sense of belonging has to be universal. This is what he said. 
A genuine revolution of values means in the final analysis that our loyalties must become ecumenical rather than sectional. The call for a worldwide fellowship lifts neighborly concern beyond one's tribe, race, class, and nation is in reality a call for an all-embracing and unconditional love for all. This is what he said in 1963. With every ounce of our energy, we must continue to rid this nation of the incubus of segregation, but we shall not in the process relinquish our privilege and our obligation to love. While abhorring segregation, we shall love the segregationist. This is the only way to create the beloved community. So that's, again, it's radical. He's saying, I'm not wanting to even other my opponents, my enemies. So let me close just with uh, um, one more quote by King and then another quote. Oh, first I want to quote a jazz musician named Don Cherry. This is what he said. This expresses it in jazz language. He said, the outside is not, the inside is too. <laughs> Got it? So, this is more in the Zen style. <laughs> Sorry. So this is not to, not to be processed by the linear mind, okay? But by the intuitive mind opening up to mysterious truth. Okay, um, okay this is from King. The end is reconciliation, the end is redemption, the end is the creation of the beloved community. It is this type of spirit and this type of love that can transform opposers into friends. And then from the, one of the uh, discourses of the Buddha, one of the stories, uh, the Buddha approached uh, three monks, uh, Anuruddha, Nandiya, Kambila, and he greeted them collectively as the Anuruddhas. And how is it, you Anarudas, referring the same name to all three, that you are living together on friendly terms and harmonious as milk and water blend, regarding one another with the eye of affection? Anaruda spoke of having developed metta in regard to acts of body, speech, and mind. He said, Dear sir, we have diverse bodies, but we assuredly have only one mind and heart. This has been developed by metta, by loving kindness. We no longer prefer our own happiness to that of others. So again, these three forms of practice we could reflect on. Studying where there's the process of othering seeing where we can counter that process, and I particularly focused on empathy, but there are other ways as well. And then thirdly, uh, doing what we can to uh, create that more beloved community, that more inclusive community. Let me invite any questions or comments. We have a little bit of time. We'll use the microphone. Thank you, Anne. You can like to speak in any way, really. Uh, doesn't have to be a question. Could be a reflection or a story. Yeah, I happen to believe that um, the tendency or the desire or the need to other. Um, ultimately stems from um, a place of pain or trauma Mm -hmm. or something that occurred in childhood or as you're growing up Mm -hmm. unresolved um, pain or suffering Mm -hmm. and therefore we have parts of us that want to other either need to or want to and um, that unless we get back to that original pain or trauma and really heal that part, mm-hmm. um, that 
all the other things like meta, <coughs> empathy, and so on mm-hmm. are very good, healthy practices, mm-hmm. but seems like doesn't quite go far enough. Right. And it's often a struggle. Yeah. And um, that's not to put all those practices down because they're important. What would you? How would you react to that in terms of the need to yeah. really get to the core healing that needs to occur, so that we can feel good about ourselves, mm-hmm. and therefore feel good about others, and show metta and yeah. loving kindness, etc. Yeah, yeah. Thank you, John. I think uh, very helpful uh, addition, really. Yeah, I I, I uh, <laughs> agree with you that in um, a lot of the examples of othering we could uh, trace it to some kind of uh, uh, unresolved, often hidden pain or suffering. You know, I think it's probably most obvious in something like uh, the intergenerational trauma, uh, let's say linked with African Americans, right? And that that also, it's takes a, there's a deep healing that's required uh, in all social groupings, right? But there there's the clearly the the trauma of uh, what a, the middle passage of slavery of uh, Jim Crow, for example, it's um, still very much with us, right? Can't understand the present without seeing how that, pain has not been resolved. And that, that's a very large and intense pain and there are counterparts to that. Um, so I think that, yeah, I think that touching that pain, it's going to be, there are going to be different levels and different, I think, different ways of working with it. One of the areas that I work a lot with, you know, as most of you know, is on, is on the theme of uh, working with the judgmental mind. And that could be a process where we create an other of our parts of ourselves. And I have found it very important to uh, typically trace that. There are multiple practices, but a major part is to trace it to some unresolved pain. And I, I interpret the judgmental mind essentially as a defense mechanism to cover over unprocessed pain. So very much aligned with what you were saying. And one, you know, and so this would be, this would be the next talk, <laughs> in a way. But yeah, I think, but I think, yeah, I think it's good to have that point come out here because, yeah, in in some of the more intense types of othering, that's going to be there, and in ways that we other ourselves, or uh, again, when there's that pain from the past and where it even gets to the level of trauma, uh, there's, um, it's very hard to enter into that without a lot of help and support, and one will tend to create all sorts of defense mechanisms. So I think what you're pointing to is, that we, I didn't say it explicitly, but I think the process of othering is essentially a defense mechanism. Uh, it covers over pain. And I, I use the terms anxiety and so forth. Again, it's going to be sometimes larger, sometimes smaller, sometimes more accessible, sometimes less accessible. But um, some of the more intense examples, whether personal or you know, uh, interpersonal, that's why I'm saying that uh, my suggestion for practice is especially to work on a scale of 10 with the examples of othering which are more in the middle range. When we get to the nines or the tens, we're going to need some other processes. And I think you're pointing to that, and I'm mentioning some of those as well. You know, um, uh, simply doing metta and being, you know, uh, having some empathy. Uh, one way we could say it is, is for most of the types of othering we're talking about, those are necessary but not sufficient. You can use that language. Right? Does that make some sense? Yeah. But thank you. Very, very helpful, complimentary point. Please, and then and then up here. 
I just wanted to share with the group. I yeah. don't know if you know James Baldwin's story, Sonny's Blues. Mm, no. It's magnificent. Mm-hmm. Um, it's about 20 pages long, probably available online. And it's about the evolving relationship between two brothers who've yeah. grown up in Harlem. Yeah. And um, the structure of the story is a sort of jazz structure mm-hmm. translated into narrative. Mm-hmm. But I really recommend it to mm-hmm. anyone who's never read it. Thank you. It's very much what you're talking about. And the title again? Sonny's Blues by James Baldwin. Sonny's Blues, yeah. And a lot of his stories are online. So so we have to have our uh, mandatory Google search reference. (laughs) Please, thank you. Could you you just say, just drill a little deeper into your remark that um, metta was the antidote to fear. Metta uh, is the antidote you know, to because fear. Because as I think about, you know, I've been doing a lot of reading lately, and I, the Buddha keeps, when he talks about the three conditions or the three poisons or the three, mm-hmm. the three ills, um, greed, anger, and ignorance, yeah. I always wonder why fear isn't in there yeah. as well. And I keep, it, it's, yeah, yeah. I'm kind of stuck on this. So if you could say a word. Yeah, or two yeah, it's about a wonderful that. question. What, what is the, fear isn't talked about that much by the Buddha. It's interesting. And uh, one friend, uh, writer Stephen Batchelor, some of you may know, he uh, speculated that fear is fundamental, but it's the emotional correlate of ignorance. Uh, but it's, uh, it's not headlined very much. It is talked about... And this is actually not even in the core text of the Buddha, but in some of the legends and mythology about the teaching of metta. I I don't know whether it's in the commentaries, but it's not in the actual uh, discourses where the story is that a group of practitioners went, you know, I told it from time to time, where they they go to a forest, right, and they... uh, basically are welcomed by the tree spirits there who think these practitioners are cool. And yet the, the practitioners decide they really like the forest and they overstay their welcome. And then the, to make a long story short, the tree spirits have the capability of manifesting horrible visions and really bad smells, and they do so. And the, they freak out the practitioners who go running back to the Buddha and says, go back with metta practice, loving-kindness practice. And they go back and they, uh, um, basically, it works. <laughs> and they win over the tree spirits who said, we will be your allies for forevermore. So it's one of these stories. Uh, but, but concretely, um, metta, loving-kindness practice, is a concentration practice. So concentration practice has the capability, when it's developed well, of shifting out of whatever state one's in. When concentration is well-developed, it doesn't deal with the underlying issues, but temporarily uh, concentration can uh, be used. Let's say I'm, you know, the example I often give is I wake up in the middle of the night, I'm anxious about something, right? And I'm going into negative storylines that I know are not helpful, but still they have me. (laughs) Anyone relate to that? (laughs) Okay. And uh, at those moments, one can use metta. And it, it, because of the power of concentration, when it's developed enough, it can shift one out of that state, shift out of being stuck, basically. And you know, I've sometimes told my story of using metta for several hours when I was camping and I thought a bear might be nearby. Yeah. Remember that story? Some of you know. Um, but... The, it, it can be used, and I've, I've had friends in Thailand who use metta practice in prison. And you hear similar stories among Tibetans who've been tortured. They use these practices of the heart that are able to shift away, and in part, shift away from being stuck, but also shift away, shift away from the negative storylines in the case of the Tibetans, it would be to shift away from going into blaming, judging, creating an enemy, creating an other. 
and just staying with that. Again, because it's concentration, it can override uh, certain states. doesn't mean you've gotten rid of the fear or the basis of the fear, but it means you override it so it's no longer strong. And so it's a very powerful tool. And, um, you know, when we, we, part of the practice of loving-kindness would also be that we would um, uh, also be able to see things. We, get, we create a little more space. The mind gets a little more space. And so we may see things. We, may either, we bring in partly the mindfulness and wisdom aspects. So uh, generally, this, this is, would be of the category of what in the meditative way we call antidotes. They switch the state of mind. And they have the, it's, it's one way to work with fear. So it's an antidote to fear. It doesn't uproot fear. It's an antidote to fear. And of course, if we practice it a lot. So for, you know, to maybe last, last thought, and it's related to uh, the point about trauma and pain. Uh, my, you know, and when I work with people with the judgmental mind, I think this is true for working with, I know because I've, I've studied trauma quite a bit, and it's true with trauma as well that uh, when one is going into difficult territory, whether it's personal or cultural, social, one needs to have a lot of resources in which one goes into beautiful states. You know, it could be to go, you know, it could be, you know, the support of friends or love from others, or it could be being with beauty. And that uh, for, you know, when I work with people with judgments, we kind of have two strategies. One is to go into the pain. The other is to spend a lot of time being with beauty, being with beautiful states, and getting that to be really, really familiar, more and more familiar. And the healing process seems to take both. That's partly, you know, to be more specific about the healing process. Just going into the pain doesn't work. It's too much, typically. You need to have all kinds of resources, and you can't always be there. You know, you have to go there often. One of the main ways to work with trauma is you go in for a short amount of time and then you go back to the beautiful states. Hang out there, get resourced, then you go back in for a little bit. You know, and the little bit can mean like 30 seconds or a minute. You know, and that's, this is, I think people are having understanding, this is one of the main ways that healing works. You go, you develop, you go back and forth, really. And, and actually, when people are pretty well regulated, that process is a very natural one. That if we're, you know, with some area of our life where we're pretty much, where we're not overly triggered, there's a natural tendency when we're open to, to go, to kind of alternate between going into beautiful, wonderful states that are very uh, much uh, supportive. And then, and then we become open. Oh, I think I, you know, like our system is saying, oh, I think I can handle a little more of the difficult stuff. It's, it's, it's like it's a natural, it's a natural process. So, um, and so metta plays a key role in that, uh, in that process of uh, having the resources. And it, it actually gives one resources where one can actually face, at times, the fear. And you, you partly know, this is not all of who I am or the pain. You know, you know, you know this is not the entirety of me. When you believe that, it's too much, right? But you know, okay, my ex- I have these different parts of my life, and there's some pain, but there's also this beauty. So that's a general strategy for healing, and metta or practices like it play a very key role. Okay, so very rich. Let's just sit for a moment to finish. Thank you for your patience going a little bit over. You know I, uh, that's not uncommon with me. Self confession. So just give there, let there be a little bit of time to reflect on what may have been uh, activated, some insight, and especially some sense of your own intentions. Where, where do you go? Where do you go following this exploration this morning?
And so we finish by remembering that we uh, inquire, we practice, we bring this into our lives for both ourselves and for others. And we, we uh, in a very traditional way, we end by dedicating the value from this morning session uh, to all beings. All beings includes us. We belong in all beings. <laughs>